All right, so last week we began that, our fruits series. And like I said, we're looking at each of the fruits in isolation, these marks, these proofs of the Holy Spirit's work in you and I as genuine Christians. And to borrow from last week's imagery, we are popping the hood. We are going to look underneath the hood of both the Christian and the non-Christian so that we can see how the love of the Christian is fundamentally different from the non-Christian. Both Christians and non-Christians love. Both Christians and non-Christians, by God's grace, even if you're a non-Christian, has the ability to marry and to have children. Both kinds of people may build a family, love them deeply, love them generously. Both kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians, have deep friendships. They get attached to people. However, the love that God is growing in the Christian is fundamentally different than in the non-Christian. This love is proof that the engine that is driving the Christian is different than the engine that's driving the non-Christian. Therefore, what the Christians and the non-Christians in your life need most is not for you to love them with all that you are. Your best version, your best concept of love. They need you to love them with a love that is not your own. An unnatural love. And that love is God's love. And it is grown into us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the first fruit of the Spirit is about. Let's get to our proposition today. Remember, this is try to condense what is the clear, consistent message of God's word for us in a single statement for us to understand it. And I believe it's this, that Christians prove the spirit of Jesus is working in them by demonstrating countercultural love for all kinds of people. Now, by countercultural love, I mean a love that's contrary to your flesh and a love that's contrary to the culture that you live in. One of one things we have in common is that we all live in the same culture, in the West, in the Americana. Your flesh tells you to show love to people who look like you. That's your family. And what Jesus is going to tell us this morning is that there is not anything unique about a spouse who loves their spouse, or about a parent who loves their child, or about a grandparent who loves their grandchild. You see, that is how God has created us in his image. Whether it's Christian or non-Christian, even non-Christians have such a deep and precious capacity to love. Because even though they don't have faith in Jesus, they are still handcrafted in the image of God. So even the non-Christians love, how sweet and precious as it is, is evidence that God is real. Because God is love. We were created, Christian or non-Christian, to be loving contributors to a family. Because it was always God's vision and intention to create a family for himself. Now, the Americana, our culture tells you that you are to love people by allowing them to do whatever they want to do, unless they're hurting somebody. It's a strange ideology, because who gets to define what hurts another person? Unless you don't have some standard of law some standard of justice, some standard of truth. American culture calls this intolerant, or tolerance, but this is not tolerance, nor is it truly love. You see, both approaches do not even begin to approach, get close to the kind of love that Jesus is referring to today in Luke chapter 6. We must remember that the Christian and the non-Christian have something in common that we are all handcrafted in the image of God, male or female, race, ethnicity, tribe, tongue, socioeconomic status, Christian, non-Christian. We are all made in the image of God. But the very introduction to the story of God in this universe in our lives is that this image was destroyed in Adam and Eve. You see, as Bible readers, we must take very seriously the historicity of Adam and Eve, that they were real people, because it explains 
how you and I are and why we act the way that we act. Christians and non-Christians are beautiful and broken image bearers of God. And this is what this means for us in our natural love. It means that you and I do not naturally love as fully as God intended for us to. The love of a non-Christian is beautiful, but it's incomplete. It's broken. Today, we are going to look underneath the hood to see how the love that God is creating in us through the Holy Spirit is fundamentally different than what is underneath the hood of a non-Christian. And that's the idea every single Sunday until Advent. Isolate a fruit of the Spirit. Discuss how both Christians and non-Christians experience some sort of peace or joy, but it's fundamentally different for the Christian. For today, we're going to see that the love that God is creating in us is counter to what your flesh says love is and what the Americana culture tells you what love is. It is not natural for you, sorry, it is natural for you to love people that your flesh thinks is beautiful and pleasing. That's natural. We all do this. It is natural for you to love your spouse, to love your children, your grandchildren, and your friends, because they look like you. They are cut from the same cloth as you. They're interested in the same things that you are. And the Americana spirit says, you find people who look like you, dress like you, listen to the same music, have the same hobbies, have the same interests, and that's now your tribe. That's what America teaches you, and that's not love. The love that God is creating in the Christian is for all kinds of people. It's for those who do not look like you, have the same interests as you, have the same values and convictions as you. And the first place where the Christian begins to practice this kind of love is the church family. The church family should look different than you, right? What does Pastor Joe have to do with somebody like Vernon? But we spent last night together. Same thing with Arash, right? Different backgrounds, different cultures, but because of the blood of Jesus put together. That's the church. This is the first environment where we get to practice a love that is not our own. And we can never show it to people who are not like us outside the church unless we begin to practice it to those who don't look like us in the church. But therefore, the church must, in a sense, look like the culture around us. And we are lamenting and talking about this last night on our drive home, that this area is no longer looking the way that it looked 70 years ago when this church first started. And thank God. And may we pray that our church begins to reflect what is in this community more and more each day, month, week, year. Amen? Amen. But even though this is true, this is not merely intended. The love that God is creating in us isn't merely intended for your adopted brothers, sisters in Christ. We're going to see today that this kind of love is meant for people that you villainize. Because yes, even though you're a Christian, you still villainize people. It's for people that you reject. It's for people that you marginalize. This kind of love is meant for people who seek to hurt you. God's love is for those that naturally you don't want to extend love to. And Jesus is going to address that Corruption of our love in his image through Luke chapter 6 today. You ready to get started? Someone told me at gathering once, I can't wait to go through the fruits of the Spirit and do love. And I think it may be that there's the rosy colored love that are maybe is found on Hallmark cards and movies and TV shows. But this is the love that God is creating in us today. Let's take a look at the first point. In the first point, you are going to wrestle with Jesus' call to love people contrary to how you want to. The first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions is love. And at Gather last Wednesday, I made a comment like this. I said something like, as Christians, we don't force God's word to fit into our ideologies, willing to reframe or re-explain 
what God's word means so it fits into how we want to live. If you'll notice, if people have come in and through Heritage over the years, that's one of their biggest issues, is that consistently I pray, and you pray this continues, that the preaching on Sundays and Wednesdays clarifies what God's word is saying, and it's pushing you to fall underneath it. And eventually that creates a crisis of faith, because words and actions over time proves really the genuine work of God in you. And a person can only keep up with that for so long. And they may go and find another place that will be used to conform Scripture to their ideas of what Christianity or what love is. There are plenty of churches that redefines love outside the bounds of what we're going to see here today. But that isn't the gospel, and that isn't Scripture, and that isn't truly love. As Christians, we conform our ideas underneath what God's Word says. That's fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. And our ideas must conform to what Jesus says right now about love here. And so we're going to wrestle for a couple minutes together. Let's get started in verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. The first thing that you need to see that love isn't necessarily a feeling, it is an action. It is a feeling, and it's nothing less than a feeling, but it's more than just a feeling. Now that strikes a chord against all the Americana pop culture music since the cultural sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s, right? Whatever Jesus means by our English word love, it is nothing less than action, though it includes feeling. Now in Greek, the language of the New Testament writers, there are four words for our one English word for love. And it is helpful at times, which I do with you every so often, at least once or twice a year, we revisit those four Greek words for love so we can clearly see the love that Jesus is calling to right here for the enemy and also for clarity, the love that Jesus is not calling you to show to the enemy, which we'll talk about this morning. The first one is eros. This is where we get our English word erotic, the erotica. This is the sexual love. The love of being close to someone because you find them physically appealing. The second one is philia. This is the bond of commonality that you have with your family and friends. You, you, you mean you like Lord of the Rings too? I can be friends with you know how many, like, no's I got just now? <laughs> Maybe over the next 10 years, you will grow to love it a little bit more. Mercy. Mercy. <laughs> the third is storge. This is the attachment that we have to things and to people. You know, wife, oh, wife, when you tell your husband, throw that shirt away. Or, oh, husband, when you're like, wife, throw that away. I know my father-in-law understands this concept. And you hear, I just can't. I love that shirt, right? There's a reason why we cannot bring Terry's wife to certain cleaning days or working days where we clean up this church because she has storge for it. For example, do you remember when we had that tree removed? Oh, she had storge for that tree. And I think there's still lingering effects still. She's still upset with me about that tree being gone. But that's an attachment to things. And sometimes we can get attached to people because of the familiarization. That's why you have to be careful about who you put yourself around. Because you will simply be with that person sexually, romantically, because you've, it's, it's what you've done for the past couple of years. It's just who you are. And it's so hard to break apart from that. It's not because you truly love them. You have store J for them. I have store J for filet. I clearly do, Right? But I, my life will continue without storage, without filet. When Jesus calls you right here to love your enemy, I would say praise God that he's not calling us to eros, philia, or storge. That's not the love that Jesus is saying that you must have for the enemy. It's the fourth word. And maybe this is more complicated. I don't know. But it's agape. For the Greeks, agape is the highest form of love in the Greek culture. For Jesus and the New Testament writers, 
They intentionally use this word to describe the love that God has for people, the love that Christians should have for God, the love that we should have for each other, and for people in general, even the enemy. You see, agape is selfless love. Agape doesn't seek to use people to get something in return, some sort of feeling in return. That's the Americana basis of relationships. It's transactional. You do this for me. I do this for you. Mutually beneficial. And when there comes a time when I'm no longer receiving what it is that I think that you're going to give to me, I'm done. That's not agape. That's more storge. It's transactional. Get this attachment, and when the attachment buzz goes away, I move on. But the love that God calls Christians to is fundamentally different. Two totally different engines underneath the hood that we're going to see. Agape doesn't seek what the loved wants. Agape seeks God's best for them, even if it hurts, even if they say something hard to them sometimes. Agape also absorbs the cost of what it takes for a person to experience God's best. God's work in us through the Holy Spirit is to create agape, his love, into us. And here's what you need to wrestle with right now. Agape is counter to your body. It's counter to your flesh. And it is counter not just to America and the West. America just gets the hard knock all the time from us because this is the culture that we live in. But it doesn't matter West or East. It's going to drive a wedge between you and culture as well. Jesus says, agapate your enemies. That's just the verb for agape. Show agape to your enemies. We are to love our enemies to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who mistreat us. And some of you are like, oh yeah, I, I pray for them, all right? <laughs> now, in Greek, our English word for enemy means someone that you find odious. There is such a stench to them and their character, what they say and what you do. You can't even come close to them because the stench is so disgusting to you. And the reality is, you and I all have someone or some kind of person that we find odious. That's what enemy means. Now let's clarify. Jesus does not call you to have eros, philia, storge for those that you find odious or who we call the enemy. Jesus calls you to have agape for them, selfless love that seeks their best at your expense for them. Your flesh will fight against the call of Jesus right now to love the enemy. Because in the West, in America, we don't love our enemies. We fight against the enemy. We destroy the enemy. We pursue and eradicate the enemy. We villainize the enemy. We marginalize the enemy. We cancel the enemy. But Jesus says, Christians grow to love the enemy. And for a moment, you have to think, why is that? Why is my Lord calling me to love the enemy? And you should be asking yourself that in your heart of hearts right now. And the answer is this. It's because our Lord loved the enemy. All the way to the cross. And the reality is, I'm that enemy. And you are that enemy. Our sin nature makes us rebel enemies against Jesus as Father. And think about it this way. Did Jesus vilify you? To the woman caught in adultery, brought towards him in the Jewish temple, did he villainize her? Did he ostracize her? Did he cancel her? He died for her. He spoke light and truth into her sexuality. That's Jesus. Jesus sought out her and our best interest, which is reconciliation with his Father. And Jesus secured this reconciliation by taking the cost of what the reconciliation would be upon himself and upon his shoulders on the cross. Because of this, we as the church are to love those that we find odious the enemy, by seeking their best interest, their greatest good. We're to love them by blessing them. We are to love them by praying for them, and not just for God's judgment and wrath upon them, 
when they hurt you. This is proof that you are a Christian. Not your profession of faith, not your baptism, not your church membership. This is proof that you're a Christian. This is the proof that the Holy Spirit is the engine and the pistons that are driving your life. Now, some of you are probably saying in your mind's mind right now, if this is Christianity, peace, I'm out. And that's okay, because Christianity is not for everyone. But nonetheless, this is Christianity. Just because the sky is blue and you want to call it purple does not mean that it's any less blue. This is Christianity, and this is what Jesus means by love, and he clearly speaks about it. This is what Jesus did for you, and you cannot be a Christian unless you reconcile that this way before you can do it this way. This is what Jesus is creating in his people through his spirit. Is this hard heritage? Yes, yes of course, I feel it. It is not natural for you, and it's not natural for me to show agape for those that we consider to be the enemy, for those we find odious, for those that we know hate us, for those who curse us, for those who mistreat us. I understand. I feel it too, even by people that I consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ. It is natural for you to love those that you find pleasing, those that you find beautiful, those are like, wow, he listens to the same music as I do. That's great. I'll love him. Let's go to verse 29. Jesus is about to go off the chain. He says, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, you have to remember that Jesus is speaking to a particular culture, first century Jewish culture. What we just read, this is not directly related to our culture. We don't see people necessarily slapping people and taking each other's coats. But this was real and a present thing in first century Jewish culture in Israel. In Jewish culture, slapping someone on the cheek was a common practice. The slap on the cheek was not meant to physically hurt. And they traditionally would use the backhand. A slap on the cheek in Jewish culture was meant to shame you. It was meant to insult you publicly. That was the purpose of it. It's meant to damage you socially and relationally in culture. Jesus warns that there are people in your life who may want to shame you, insult you, and damage you socially and relationally. So we ask, what does agape look like in this situation? And it's not what you would expect, right? In America, oh, you slap me on the cheek? Let me get my backhand prepared. Right? But for Christianity, it looks like turning the other cheek. Let's talk for a moment as to what this really means. In Jewish culture, it meant absorbing the first slap and then getting the other cheek ready for the other backhand. And the question we have to ask is, why does Jesus ask us to turn the other cheek to receive the second backhand? And I think it's this. It sets up a contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian, between the flesh and the spirit. That's why. It shows what engine is driving both kinds of people. Now, Jesus uses another example for the same teaching. In a Jewish court of law, one this is strange, I don't get this, but this is 21st century America. But in first century Jewish law, one of the common requests that a debtor would make was for a person to surrender their outer coats, their outer garments. I don't understand, but it was some 
reason, a creditor would ask the debtor who could not repay their debts monetarily to give them the outer garment. But if you think about it, this makes sense. It's not like you and I, who probably if we went to each other's homes, we could go into your coat closet and probably see like 10 different coats. No? Well, that's good. The ladies in my life? Uh, but I, I, can't, I can't speak because that's a pot calling the kettle black because I probably have like five, six, maybe. You know, it's really cool, like Cubs jacket that I like to wear when they're winning, and it's when it's not hot. But in first century Jewish culture, the coat was representative of who you are. You could be on the city watch looking out and buy the person's coat, know who's coming into the town or the city. It protected you from the extreme elements of Middle Eastern climate. Jesus says, if you haven't paid back your creditor, give him your coat, take off your outer garment, and then give them your inner garments as well. Now, this is a common Jewish court of law practice. Literally and physically, how would that leave a good Jew in the court of law? Naked. Exposed. And we have to ask again, Jesus, why are you calling us to do this? And again, this sets up the contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian. For the non-Christian, it reveals the negative persistence, the malice, the hate of the aggressor, and then it reveals the tenderness and the humility of the Christian. Because the Christian, therefore, would be left naked and destitute in court. And you want to know who you would look like in this moment? You would look like Jesus. Because we must remember that our Lord had to experience a court of law, a Jewish court of law. And we went through this on Wednesday nights recently, that he was stripped of his clothing, left naked and exposed before this court of law. And then before the ultimate judge, before the ultimate king, the ultimate court of law, his father, he hung on a cross essentially naked where people mocked him and made fun of him, and ridiculed him. Why would Jesus have us as his people do this? Because it is in this moment that you will look most like him. That's why. When you love like this, you prove that you belong to Jesus. And right now in this first point, you need to wrestle with the idea of love that Jesus is presenting to you right now. So I think for most of us, because we have been more shaped by culture than by scripture, we do have the hallmark feel of what love is. But this is the love that Jesus calls us to, and it is a love above our own. This is not how you want to naturally love people. You want to reject people who are not like you. You mean you don't like Lord of the Rings? Get out of my life. We want to reject people who don't hold our values, our convictions, our way of life. But Jesus says, the proof that you belong to me is that you show my love to those kinds of people. Let's look at verses 30 and 31. Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Agape treats people the way agape wants to be treated. Our culture loves this. It's still in the American culture. It's called the golden rule. This is one thing that a non-Christian, any Christian can agree upon. They want this statement. So do we. We have two fundamentally different understandings of what this statement means and how it is applied relationally. Agape is love in action that does not seek necessarily what the person wants, but what the other person needs by you taking on the cost, by you absorbing the cost. And this kind of love is counter nature and counter cultural but it is proof that God the Spirit indwells you. 
Real love seeks God's best in the other. And Jesus paid the cost for you and I to love like this. And Jesus' spirit indwells the Christian so that we can love like this. And here's the thing that we must remember. You and I, I don't believe, I think this statement will be true. We do not pay the short nor the long-term cost to seek God's best in a person. Jesus does. So the question to ask yourself right now is, when it comes to love, what is underneath your hood? What is the engine, the cylinder, the piston that is driving and pumping your love? Is there an enemy? Someone you find odious? Someone who hates you? Someone who curses you? Someone who mistreats you that you refuse to show Christ's love to? And if so, you got to wrestle with that and Jesus' words as we continue to point to. Some of y'all may be like, Pastor, like we need an update before Sunday sermons as to what you're doing so I can figure out if I'm going to come or not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but I do pray that you're going to see the hope by application, okay? But in point two, we're going to see that the Christian displays grace to those that their flesh feels is undeserved. So we have to be confronted with the idea that currently, even though we're Christians, we do have some kinds of people that we think are undeserving of the love of God and our love. And that would bring shame to the cross. In point two, Jesus addresses an issue that all people struggle with. Though we are beautiful and broken image bearers of God, we believe that there are some kinds of people who are less deserving of grace than others. You mean they come into this country illegally? Oh, how dare they? No grace, no love. We live in a state that's like this. That's not Jesus' love. Now, this varies by culture, but it's present in all culture, in the West or in the East. And this opposes the very nature of God's grace. Grace is unmerited, unconditional favor and support of someone. There's nothing that they can do to earn it. There's nothing that they do to deserve it. It's freely given from one to the other. No strings attached. Naturally, you and I are wired to be gracious to those who are like us. Oh, you like Lord of the Rings. I'm going to be extra nice to you. It seems trivial and comical, but the Americana does that. You have the same interests as me? Oh, then therefore you are like me, and I will attach myself to you. I know many people who are kind and generous and gracious to their people, but they are a scrooge to others. Oh, it's not even Christmas yet. Why is this? It may be that perhaps deep down, they do not think that that person is as deserving as their people because they have the same skin color. They have the same zip code. They go to the same church. They like the same books, music, and movies. Therefore, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit in us to show grace to people that naturally we don't think deserves it. Why? Because we too are undeserving of the love and the grace that our Father has shown to us in the death of his Son. That is why. Let's go to verse 32. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. What is Jesus saying? There is nothing special. There is nothing noteworthy about loving people who love you. That is natural. That is how God has created all people in his image. We have a capacity to love, whether we're Christians or not, because he is love. So even the richest, deepest love of the non-Christian is proof that God exists. Because though we may romanticize this in the animal kingdom through National Geographic little episodes and cartoons, there truly is no quantifiable evidence that there is that true love. We think of little squeeze of koala bears as love. 
but this is unique to image bearers of God. What is special, what is noteworthy, is when you give free grace, when you give agape to those that you once thought were undeserving. So what about the undeserving in your life? As flawed and broken human beings, you are going to struggle in your flesh to see people the way that God does. You're going to struggle to see people as undeserving of your love and grace and undeserving of God's love and grace because they think differently than you. They act differently than you. They're from different places than you are. This is natural. There is some kind of person that you feel is undeserving of love and grace. And this is contradictory to the Holy Spirit's indwelling and his work in you. Showing agape to those that naturally you feel like doesn't deserve it is proof. It is credit to the one who's working in you. Now let's look at verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Same structure. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. You're like, Jesus, like 21st century, you know what interest rates are? Like that same amount? But Jesus is adding dimension and color to agape here. Agape is love in action. And your nature will scream right here and say, but that means I lose. You mean I lend and I don't get interest back? I lose. If I do good to those who don't do good to me, I lose. And you know what? You're right. You do lose. But this is Christianity. Christianity is winning by losing. Christianity is living by dying or dying to live. Agape absorbs the cost. That's God's love displayed for us in Jesus. Agape absorbs the cost so God's best is worked into the person. And this is seeking God's greatest good for those that currently right now in your life you feel like they don't deserve it. They just don't. But this is proof that the Holy Spirit is growing Jesus' love into you. I'm going to pause for a moment and remind you, Jesus is not calling you to eros, philia, and storge. Do you get that? He's not calling you for the warm fuzzies. He's calling you to win by losing and to live by dying. He's calling you to agape. Jesus' point is this. Non-Christians love and care for those who are of value to them. This is natural for a broken image bearer of God. But you and I, we all have that one kind of person that our flesh screams, says, they don't deserve it. So Jesus is giving clarity on the kind of love he wants his people to show to the world. And once again, Jesus is not asking you to show the enemy, to show those who hurt you, eros, philia, or storge. Jesus is asking you to show them agape. God's love in Christ Jesus that seeks out not what they want, but what they need by you absorbing the cost. All right, so I promised some hope, right? Where does this leave us? Maybe some warm fuzzies this morning. We'll see. Let's get the application. And the call for us as Christians today is this, is that you and I demonstrate our adoption by applying God's heart that we just heard about today to all kinds of people. On a biological level, you can probably say an amen to this, you can tell which kid belongs to which adult. For example, at our candlelight service last year, Tace and I took this warm, fuzzy picture with Lorea because she matched us. Gorgeous picture. But if I go and try to introduce, like this is my family, people will say, clearly this child does not belong to you. 
especially if William and Jess are right beside me. Kids look, sound, and act like their parents. And that also is another beautiful illustration to cement the fact, because there are things that she does, that's so William. That's so William. It is a tremendous blessing and responsibility to be a parent, because naturally, children are the culmination of the best and the worst of their parents. And that's why Dr. Keller says, and you're going you're gonna to sense this if you're reading our Proverbs devotional this year, he's going to get to this in this month. He's going to say something, therefore, a parent is only as happy as their most unhappiest child. That's hard for a parent. Blessing and responsibility. We have to think about this biblically now for a moment. The thing is, you and I are not God's natural children. We are made in his image. He is our creator, but he's not our natural father. God has one beloved son, and his name is Jesus. And though you may have Joshua or Jesus on your birth certificate, you're still not him. The process by which you and I become sons and daughters of God is what Paul calls adoption. So you know where we're headed. But we're going to see there's a cost to this adoption. And there is a pledge to that child being adopted, that this new family that they're just thrown into, that everything's going to be okay. Proof that you belong to a new family is that over time, you begin to look and sound and act like them. So I have hope that maybe 10 years from now, when I go through my Lord of the Rings illustrations, you're going to know it because you've watched the movie and read the books. I'm thankful for people like Carol who's told me, I'm, I'm listening to the audiobooks right now. It's hard, but I'm doing it. That means she loves me. Right? It is the Holy Spirit's ministry over time to change us, to look and sound and act like our new family. And we do this as we begin to love with a love that is not our own, an unnatural love, an alien love, the love of Jesus. We do this when we show agape to those that we vilify, those who vilify us, those who are odious to us, those who hurt us, mistreat us, and those that we think do not deserve it. So we got to see it in the final verses, and then we need to get to adoption. Verses 35 and 36, Jesus summarizes the teaching. He says it in the start in verse 27 and repeats at the end. There's no way to skirt around this unless you don't read the Bible. Jesus says in verse 35, love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. I told you there's some hope, right? You will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So we see that loving people with a love that is not your own has a reward. We have to clarify this. This is not the Islamic reward of faithfulness in this life and what comes to you in paradise. Amassing things for yourself in heaven. Jesus is precisely clear as to what this reward is. Jesus shows that loving your enemy, showing grace to those that you naturally think are undeserving, this is the reward. The reward is that it's proof that you're sons and daughters of God. That's the reward. So the call is, be merciful because your father, your adopted father, is mercy. He is love. He is grace. And he showed it to you. You are a part of his family now. And his family shows mercy. His family takes the cost for those that they once thought were undeserving. The great reward of showing agape is that it proves your adoption. Do you struggle with security that you truly belong to God? Are you looking for some proofs in your life? It's the growth of this kind of love in you. That's the reward. 
Let's see how Paul develops this now in Ephesians 1. At the end of verse 4 and in the verse 5, Paul says that in love, that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Anybody who once thought that predestination is about the cold, calculating nature of God does not read Scripture. What motivates predestination is adoption. What motivates adoption? His kind heart. Plain as day, right? Agape is what motivated God to predestine you for adoption. What motivates God's predetermined decision to adopt you into his family through the death of his son is his heart of kindness. God did not adopt you because you were worthy. He did not adopt you because you were just so lovable. God adopted you while you were a sinner, while you were a rebel, wholeheartedly against him. And God adopted you through Jesus. This means that Jesus is the mediator of your adoption papers. And those adoption papers were signed in his blood. And this means that Jesus paid the cost of your adoption. Whatever $30,000 it costs in this country to adopt a child, you put that on steroids. And that is the cost that Jesus paid to adopt you. The Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a moment, is the pledge. And he is the one that changes your heart to believe this. Because if you get thrown into a new family and says, this is your new dad, and dad says, go do this, don't touch this, trust me on this, on love, on sex, on money, on work, on family, you're like, hmm. Right? You need proof that the Father's way is the right way. And let's see what the proof is. Same chapter, verses 13 through 14, Paul says that in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, here it is, you were sealed in him, in Jesus, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Why? He is given as a pledge of your inheritance. You know what this means? The Holy Spirit is that costly ring of gold from your father to say, you can believe my promises. Here, this is precious. This is sweet. This is reward. Put it on your finger. Show that you belong to me. This is proof that you can trust in my promises and what I'm saying about sex and relationships and money and how to live on this earth. And that pledge, that ring, that down payment is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's indwelling you is proof of your adoption, your inheritance, your great reward. The proof of your adoption is the Holy Spirit's working of agape, his love for people. And here at Heritage, we do this in two ways. Let's clarify for a moment. The first thing at the beginning of the year I started having you to consider and push you towards, and it's not going away. So you are to love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. That means, yes, showing agape to your adopted brothers and sisters in Christ at Heritage. And it also means wherever you go in the future, you're uprooted and you have to move somewhere else for work. That means showing agape to those Christians as well. Here's the thing about Christ's church. It should be filled with people who aren't like you. Right, left, male, female, conservative, progressive, likes Lord of the Rings, does not like Lord of the Rings. The church, if it's truly the church, will be filled with people who are not like you. They are not your family, your people, but they are. By God's working, they are becoming your family. They are becoming your people. And your love for them in Jesus proves the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Seeking their best interests, as much as you seek the best interests of people who are cut from the same cloth as you, 
proves that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. Second, at Heritage, we push you towards putting yourself around people who are not like you so that they can see Christ in you. Our guys already know this. When you all start talking about hunting and guns and car stuff, I will gladly listen to it. When I was 15, 16 years old, my first couple years being a Christian, gladly listen to it. But this means that as Christians, you and I must be around non-Christians. We have to be. The genuine Christian isn't only committed to showing Christ's love to spouse and family. The genuine Christian isn't just committed to showing Christ's love to their friends. My Lord of the Rings group that's all reading the same book. The genuine Christian isn't only committed to showing Christ's love to his church. The genuine Christian, time and time again, will put themselves into the lives of non-Christians and seek and work towards not necessarily what they want, but what God wants to do in them. This means heritage. You must get outside your marriage. You must get outside your family. You must get outside of your friend base that does everything that you do. And you must get outside of this church. America has equipped you to think that the goal of church is to bring the non-Christians here. But in reality, the church is designed to fill you to go out to the non-Christians. That's it. Naturally, your flesh will push against this. It does not want to seek God's best for those who hate you, for those who mistreat you. It doesn't seek God's best for those that you think are undeserving. But if the Holy Spirit is really working in you, this is what the Holy Spirit is working towards over time. The proof of whether the Holy Spirit indwells you isn't some flashy gift, which we're going to discuss in three weeks on a Wednesday night. The proof that the Holy Spirit indwells you is the greatest gift, the experience of God's love agape, and then growing to show that kind of love to all kinds of people. 